to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. In today's episode, we will look at movie soundtracks of the 70s and see how these compilations of songs offered some commentary on life in the 70s. But first, welcome. If you are a new listener, and welcome back to the loyal For the Record, the 70s squad. As always, thank you for the nice notes of encouragement. And to those of you who have kicked in some cash into the tip jar at Patreon, if you like what you hear and you want to help pay some of the bills like hosting fees, books and subscriptions for research, things like that, please consider going to ftr70.com and clicking on the Patreon link. It really does all add up. So even a couple of bucks a month is very much appreciated. Movie soundtracks did not have the reputation of being quality listening experiences in the early 70s. The music writer and critic Vince Aletti wrote in 1973, even when a movie soundtrack isn't so awful, you'd just as soon throw it down the stairs, it very rarely achieves anything beyond a sort of banal, predictable mood music. A little suspense, a little drama, an ooze of romance, maybe a brisk driving in the car to possible danger track, counterpointed with a lighter romantic leads take a walk sequence, all compressed like a week's worth of garbage for one tight, bright under the credits main theme. Altogether, it's about as creative as an hour of elevator muzak and slightly, only slightly more bearable. Super, why would I want to spend any time at all creating a podcast episode on that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that soundtracks get better, a lot better in the 70s. Second, I think the reason that they get better is that they were made with more intention rather than simply throwing some songs together and calling it a soundtrack. Some of that, of course, will be motivated by the movie studios finally seeing the light and recognizing that a movie soundtrack and a movie can promote each other. In other words, you know, there is money to be made. I would also argue that the musicians and composers who worked on the movie soundtracks in the 70s seem to take it more seriously, um, such as when Sir Paul McCartney read an Ian Fleming novel to better understand James Bond the night before he wrote Live and Let Die. Now, the rest of the soundtrack to Live and Let Die is not bad, not great, but Live and Let Die would have been a hit without the movie. In the case of, say, Jimmy Cliff with The Harder They Come, uh, that soundtrack, or Marvin Gaye with the Trouble Man soundtrack, they were trying to write music that complemented the movies and the characters in these movies. This represents an evolution from what we could expect from like Elvis. Elvis Presley was not only the king of rock and roll in the 50s and in the 60s until 1963, he was also the king of soundtracks. He recorded 18 movie soundtracks. It is not a secret that Elvis wanted to be a serious actor, but ended up doing a series of these formulaic movies about guys named Chad or Scott or Ross who would chase girls and punch other guys and sing songs. Now, full disclosure, I love to watch Elvis movies, but I do feel a bit bad knowing that Elvis did not like making them. The point being, of course, that he was not sitting down to write music 
that helped us better understand Chad or Scott or Ross. As rock music made its way into pop music, even Elvis began to have a hard time selling movie soundtracks. So how is it that the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 as the 70s began, the week ending January 3rd, 1970, was Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head by B.J. Thomas. It is part of the soundtrack to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Not only was it number one, it stayed there for a month. The entire soundtrack won a Grammy and an Academy Award for Best Score in 1970, and Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head won an Oscar for Best Original Song. Now let me take a minute and clarify a couple of things. A soundtrack is the collection of all songs that were in a movie or were, quote, inspired by the movie. They were not necessarily written for that movie and often were already recorded. A score is often instrumental music that helps set the mood for a scene or the movie itself, and that music was specifically written for the movie. The Butch Cassidy soundtrack is probably best classified as jazz or at least jazz adjacent. It was written by the hit-making machine that is Burt Bacharach with his songwriting partner, Hal David. They wrote hits for Dionne Warwick, Warwick in the 60s, like Walk On By and Say A Little Prayer. Bacharach wrote What's New Pussycat for Tom Jones and The Look of Love for Dusty Springfield, Close to You for The Carpenters. You get the idea. The guy was a hit machine. The score for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was a bit non-traditional, as is the movie itself. It is kind of a Western, but not a John Wayne style of Western. It is a bit kind of lower on the macho meter than that, but it still has that theme of freedom and independence that Americans love. In fact, many of the movies that had hit soundtracks in the 70s also had a theme of freedom and independence. That's not a 70s thing, that's an American thing. Robert Redford speculated that the powerful friendship between Butch and Sundance also had something to do with the movie's popularity, even though critics dismissed both the movie and the hit from the soundtrack. Here is what Redford said many years later. I remember Bill Goldman calling me at the time and just being devastated. And he said, I don't believe these sons of bitches. I don't believe these. And then George was even worse. And they took the attitude, the hell with it. The hell with them, the hell with it. And then suddenly the, the film started to pick up. And of course, they both just happened to be in the neighborhood every day to see if the film was, <laughs> was going to be picked up, you know, gain strength. And it did. And, and within, uh, God, I think about two, three weeks, it, it rose past the whatever negative criticism there was, it just kind of blew right through it, and that was the end of that. Clearly, the critics missed the chord that it, and very often that happens with critics, is again, you know, they're so busy looking at it either from an intellectual or academic place, they, they miss what kind of a chord is really being touched with the general public. You know, if it doesn't fit some scheme that they have in mind, they say, oh, this is no good. But the fact is, when you, that whole business about who are those guys just caught on. You know, as the song did. I remember the song got crucified. What's that song? And I wondered what it was doing in the film myself. I said, what's, what's that got to do with anything? Raindrops? Falling on your head? Oh, come on. Well, I was wrong. And, uh, and critics were wrong. Audiences loved it. Redford makes an interesting point there about how the critics were viewing the movie and missing the reasons why people who actually buy the tickets like the movie. In the 60s, film was starting to be regarded as art. 
meaning more than entertainment. As an art, there were academic minds that began to study film through the lens of what it might reflect of society's ideas and values and aspirations. There is value in that, but it can also complicate things, and I suspect that's what happened here with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. As for the song, radio really did not know what to call it. I mean, ukulele music? B.J. Thomas said that the song sounded so different from everything else that radio was playing that there was some resistance to giving it any airtime. Ray Stevens had passed on the opportunity to record it, but Thomas did not, saying, who would pass up making a song for a Paul Newman movie? Yeah, I know Robert Redford too, but nobody really knew who he was yet. Thomas was recovering from laryngitis when he recorded the song, and so he didn't think that he was at his best, but Burke Bacharach loved it. Apparently, lots of pop music fans loved it too. This is the song that played as Paul Newman, starring Butch Cassidy, rode a bike with Catherine Ross as at a place on his handlebars. Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling So I just did need some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done Sleeping on the job Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling But there's one thing I know The blues they send to me Years later, in 1972, the movie Superfly came out. It stars Ron O'Neill as Youngblood young blood Priest, a drug dealer who wants to go straight even though the money he makes selling cocaine in Harlem makes him very rich. Now, Ron O'Neill was a stage actor who performed in plays like Kiss Me Kate and A Streetcar Named Desire, and as we like to say, he was classically trained. So what in the world was he doing playing a cocaine dealer in Superfly? What he said was, Superfly is about people who don't believe in the American dream at all. Now, like a lot of other classics in the canon of black exploitation films, such as Shaft, which was released the year before, there were some people who were very critical of Superfly because they believed that it glorified drug use and it played into too many of the stereotypes, the negative stereotypes, about African Americans. Is it as simple as that, though? I don't think so. As we say now, it's complicated. It is not up for dispute that African Americans were lagging far behind in opportunities to get high-paying jobs, get mortgages that would allow them to purchase property in these, quote, desirable neighborhoods, and the chance to get into and afford college in the 70s. 
Such is the legacy of slavery, and then for a hundred years after that, Jim Crow. The Bronx in New York and other cities similar, but we'll you know we'll focus on the Bronx here for a minute, is a prime example of what happens when you ignore a class of people and then you blame them for their response to being ignored. Now I've discussed this in other episodes of this podcast. So is it exploitation when African-American filmmakers hire African-American actors and crew and write a script that just might not be for white people? I'm not answering the question. I'm asking the question. Look, here is what the author Michael Denzel Smith wrote in a retrospective review of the soundtrack for the movie Superfly. He said, the best political music doesn't necessarily announce itself as political because it is concerned first and foremost with the people for whom the politics matter the most. He wrote that because he was trying to answer the question of how the hell Superfly sold 5 million copies. Superfly, the soundtrack. Here's what I, a Gen X white lady who loves rock and soul and disco and country pop, This is what I take away from that. Some things are not for me. And by not for me, I mean not made for me any more than Andy Gibbs' target audience was 12-year-old boys in the Bronx. There were also some jokes and some criticism about Superfly because it came out right after Shaft, and a lot of people thought that it was just copying Shaft. Son of Shaft, they said. Maybe but it was a worthy son. Curtis Mayfield said that he was eager to write for the Superfly soundtrack because he wanted to add to the commentary on life in the ghetto and offer a glimpse of what the victims and the drug pushers both may have felt. Now, his soundtrack is not nearly as ambivalent about the issue of drug use as the movie seems to be, and it is an album that can stand on its own. Vincelletti said that, quote, Mayfield moved even further away from soundtrack conventions with his music for Superfly, a track of songs and music which commented upon rather than merely illustrating the film's action. Mayfield didn't restrict his lyrics to the theme or title song and kept his score relatively free of genre cliché, so the music stands quite successfully free of the movie. Mayfield's comments seem to be something like, this could happen to anyone. It isn't just about morals and virtue. It is about circumstance. The title track, Superfly, was a top 10 hit, as was Freddy's Dead. Freddy is Fat Freddy, a junkie who gets run over by a car. There's nothing glorified about it. In fact, there's nothing glorified about anything that plagues black people living in American cities in the 70s. This is music that draws from many influence, influences, as our cities have. Like our cities, Mayfield wrote this melting pot of an album that feels like funk, and it feels like blues, and it feels like jazz, and it feels like rock, and it has something to say. Here are some of the lyrics from Freddy's Dead. Everybody's misused him, ripped him up and abused him, another junkie plan, pushing dope for the man. A terrible blow, but that's how it goes. A Freddy's on the corner now. 
If you want to be a junkie, wow. Remember, Freddy's dead. Freddy's dead. That's what I said. Let the man rap a plan, said he'd send him home. But his hope was a rope and he should have known. It's hard to understand. There was love in this man. I'm sure all would agree that his misery was this woman and things. Now Freddy's dead. That's what I said. Everybody's misused him, ripped him off and abused him. Another jacket plan, pushing dope for the man. A terrible blow, but that's how it goes. A Freddy's on the corner now. If you wanna be a junkie, wow. Remember Freddy's day. Freddy's Dead hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1972. It was an instrumental in the film. It was nominated for a Grammy for Best R&B Song in 1973, but lost to Papa Was a Rolling Stone. It could not win an Oscar because the version of the song in the movie did not have words, and the Academy said that the best song had to have words. This caused a controversy because that is a stupid rule. That same year, what is kind of the Jamaican version of a black exploitation film was released and also had a soundtrack that is considered a classic. The movie, The Harder They Come, got a mixed reception, but the soundtrack did not. The musician Jimmy Cliff played Ivan, a musician who is taken advantage of by the music industry and only gets $20 for a song that he wrote. Then, seeing no other opportunities, he turns to a life of crime on the mean streets of Kingston. A familiar familiar formula, yes, it is. But the music was very unique to American ears and leads to a boom in Jamaican music in the United States. Interestingly enough, in the U.S., reggae was largely white people music in the 70s. This really bugged Bob Marley, by the way. The soundtrack to The Harder They Come was, for a lot of Americans, their introduction to reggae. Now, reggae-influenced pop music was already on the radio, but pure reggae was about to take off in 1972. In fact, if you are a fan of reggae, you will want to check out the next episode of this very podcast. Jimmy Cliff, who was already well-known in the music industry before The Harder They Come, starred in the movie and played a musician named Ivan who only gets $20 for a song he wrote, and then he turns to a life of crime in Kingston. This is a Jamaican movie filmed in Jamaica using music made by Jamaicans. Jimmy Cliff said 50 years later, it was such a landmark movie because it was very real. None of us were professional actors. Cliff says, The story is the story of any one of us who was born in the country or coming from the country. As much as a movie like Scarface, who was coming from Cuba, and then he came to the United States looking to make a fortune in the city, because we're all told that it's in the city that we can make it. The songs on the soundtrack were mostly written before the movie was even made. Six of the 12 songs were Jimmy Cliff songs, including the title track. Let's check out some of the lyrics 
to the harder they come. Well, the oppressors are trying to keep me down, trying to drive me underground, and they think that they have got the battle won. I say, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they've done. Because as sure as the sun will shine, I'm going to get my share now, what's mine. And then the harder they come, the harder they fall, one and all. It never made it onto the Billboard charts, but it was named number 122 on Rolling Stone's list of top 500 singles. The soundtrack is considered by multiple sources to be one of the greatest albums of all time. But still, to give you an idea of how soundtracks were still not very respected, Paramount Studios declined to take any shares of the royalties from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Whoops. It was only the best-selling album of all time until Thriller, it was still the exception rather than the rule to put any thought into a film soundtrack. The marketing and promotion for the movie Saturday Night Fever was very carefully coordinated with the release of the movie with the soundtrack coming first. In September of 1977, the trailer for the movie was released and featured Staying Alive, which got people wanting that song. It had not been released yet either, so people are calling the radio stations asking for it, and radio stations are asking for it. And then, when the soundtrack was released, radio was all over Staying Alive and How Deep Is Your Love. The Bee Gees were about to dominate the pop charts. When the Bee Gees wrote the theme song to Saturday Night Fever, which we know as, as Staying Alive, they didn't know anything much at all about the movie. That is really kind of hard to believe when you see John Travolta strutting along with the can of paint in the movie's opening credits. Barry Gibbs said that Robert Stigwood called him in France and said, give me eight minutes, eight minutes, three moods. I want frenzy at the beginning, then I want some passion, and then I want some wild frenzy. They wrote the song Staying Alive in two hours. Frank Rose wrote an article on the BJs for Rolling Stone and described the song as 
a disco tune. It has a real jive precision, like a sleek black Mercedes with an ashtray full of Coke. The movie is based on an article that we now know was fiction about Italian guys in Brooklyn who danced their way through their worries in a disco. Once again, we're seeing this theme of survival and freedom, only this time the freedom is on the dance floor. We see that theme of justice when Tony gives the trophy that he and his dance partner won. He gives it to the Latin couple who he knows really should have won because even on the dance floor, we've got this prejudice and bias. One of the most iconic scenes in the movie is Travolta in his polyester pants and silk shirt and platform shoes out there on the dance floor with this bass line. Right? You remember that, right? You can see it. Can't you see it? This is the bass line, of course, to You Should Be Dancing. Now, he had already rehearsed that dance with the choreographer to that song and said he was not going to do that dance to a different song. So You Should Be Dancing, which was on the Bee Gees Children of the World album in 1976, became part of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack in 1977. was a number one hit in 1976, and some people say that is the song that made the Bee Gees Disco Kings. I don't think so. I think it was jive talking. But whatever it was, their music is as important to Saturday Night Fever as John Travolta. I can't imagine one without the other. Is there anything, though, that influenced popular culture in the 70s more than Star Wars since it was released in 1977? The Star Wars franchise has sold about, oh, $25 billion worth of merchandise. What was it? What What is it about Star Wars? It goes beyond the special effects of a science fiction movie. The answer, I think, lies in how George Lucas crafted Luke Skywalker's story as the classic hero's journey, which begins with the hero living this ordinary life, And after some event occurs to force a change, he takes the hero on the path of learning from a mentor, facing his fears, and eventually being transformed. That is the journey that resonates with so many people 
And we see that journey in Westerns too, by the way, which helps explains helps explain their popularity. In the 70s, if you wanted to make a hit movie, you wanted to craft it around Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And it wasn't just Star Wars. I mean, Rocky, anyone? Which also, by the way, had a very iconic theme song. Look, Vietnam, Watergate, gas lines, nuclear disaster. Hey, we needed to know in the 70s that we could get out of this mess. We needed to know that we were not just a victim of circumstance. And the hero's journey validated all of that. Does it mean that we keep seeing the same story over and over again in 70s movies? Yes. Did we like it? Yeah, we liked it. The soundtrack to Star Wars is purely orchestral music performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and composed and conducted by John Williams. It was a very hot seller in 1977. I mean, it was selling right up there with Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album. Seven or eight bucks for a double record set of instrumental orchestral music. How do you explain its popularity with people who maybe had never bought an album like that before? Well, I mean, this soundtrack is not only good music, but it also serves as a souvenir of the movie. And given that Star Wars is one of the most beloved movies ever, it follows that fans would want to bring a souvenir of that experience home. The theme from Star Wars is majestic and it's exciting like the movie. It is instantly recognizable, but the 70s being the 70s, radio preferred the disco version of the Star Wars theme, which spent two weeks at the top of the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1977. I actually don't mind the the disco-fied version of the Star Wars theme. But here is the one that's from the movie that's on the soundtrack. Majestic. That's the word that comes to mind when I hear that one. So that's from the Academy Award winning soundtrack, the top 10 hit, the Star Wars theme song, 
John Williams, who has made something, who has something like at 60 Oscar nominations, I think. He did a little bit more than provide a movie souvenir for Star Wars fans. He reclaimed some space for the orchestral soundtrack. It was obvious by the late 70s that pop music was taking over the movie soundtrack. Alex Ross, the longtime movie critic for The New Yorker, wrote in 2016 that the Star Wars soundtrack inspired some members of the London Symphony to learn to play their instruments because they heard the song, this song, in Star Wars. The composer, Andrew Norman, decided to learn to write music after watching Star Wars on video. That's the power of music, regardless of genre. In 2005, the American Film Institute said that the Star Wars soundtrack is the most memorable score of all time for an American movie. Now, for better or worse, the grip that radio had on the listening habits and the music that people would buy in the 70s was changing both radio and the music industry. That was the subject of the movie FM. It was also an attempt to ride the wave of the Saturday Night Fever success by bundling together music that had already been released and hoping for that same kind of Saturday Night Fever synergy. The problem is that the movie FM was not a hit. The legendary music executive Irving Azoff called it an AM movie about an FM radio station. And he said he knew that the movie would would be bad when a DJ was wearing a three-piece suit at six o'clock in the morning. The movie is about DJs taking over a radio station to prevent it from giving in to the advertisers and essentially going corporate. Specifically, the controversy was about advertising for the United States Army. Remember, this is the 70s, and the Army is associated with Vietnam. Public opinion about the military, on the whole, was not good at that point. As for radio, in reality, um, the deed was already done. Corporate owners were already dictating radio playlists. The era of the DJ crafting their own playlist is largely over. They had a list of hits, and that's what they played. Yeah, they took requests, but the requests were for popular songs that were already on the playlist. What you get with the 2LP FM soundtrack is really a nice time capsule of FM radio hits of the late 70s, along with a few extras. Uh, You get Night Moves by Bob Seger, Life in the Fast Lane by the Eagles, along with a couple of solo eagle cuts like um, Life's Been Good by Joe Walsh and Bad Man by Randy Meisner. You get some Linda Rodenstadt, some Boz Skaggs. You get the picture. But let's talk about that title track, though, FM by Steely Dan. The lyrics to the song throw some serious shade at FM radio. Worry the bottle, mama, it's grapefruit wine. Kick off your high heel sneakers, it's party time. The girls don't seem to care what's on as long as they play till dawn. Nothing but blues and Elvis and somebody else's favorite song. Give her some funked up Muzak. She treats you nice. Feed her some hungry reggae. She'll love you twice. The girls don't seem to care tonight as long as the mood is right. Lots of interpretations of these lyrics. Mine 
we have a guy who seems to be the only one who cares what's on the radio. The girls don't care. I don't know. Is that you? That's me. Not the I don't care part. What I mean is I can be anywhere. Grocery store, restaurant, party, baseball stadium, and I notice the music. I do care what's on. bottle. Who's got that? Who's got the definition? What's that mean? Worry the bottle. I have nothing definitive, but if you use the definition of worry that says tear at, maybe this is tear the cork out of the bottle. I don't know. Uh, The irony though of the song being critical of FM radio is that it was a hit number 22 on the charts and is still a staple of classic radio stations. Maybe the song would have been an even bigger hit if the movie had been better. Possibly. For a while, the top two selling soundtracks were John Travolta movies, Saturday Night Fever and Grease. In 1979, Travolta, then 25 years old and a legitimate superstar, moved to Houston to film Urban Cowboy. Urban Cowboy was based on an essay written by Aaron Latham for Esquire magazine. He wrote that in 1978. Unlike the essay that led to Saturday Night Fever, this one was not made up, and it explored the lives of blue-collar workers in Houston who let off steam by playing cowboy at the cavernous nightclub Gillies. The movie was a modest box office success, but the soundtrack was a huge hit. In 2003, Urban Cowboy the Musical debuted on Broadway. Aaron Latham, who also wrote the musical, said that he talked with Clint Black about writing some songs for the show, but he had been kind of dragging his feet getting to the reading. So Latham talked to him on the phone and he said, hey, do you really want to do this or not? 
And Black said, well, I do have some problems with it. You know, people think that Urban Cowboy changed country music, made it less pure. To which Latham said, well, it helped bring a lot of people to country music who had not been fans before. That's not so bad, is it? And then Clint Black said, "Mm, it was just too popular. People don't like that. Would you be willing to change the name? (laughs) To which Latham said, "Uh, no. Apparently, Black got over it because he and Charlie Daniels did do music for the show. But the argument that he made is a bit of, I'm going to say a regurgitation of the same old argument that by that time had been going on for decades, that pop country artists were ruining the purity of country music. Of course, that had been going on since the 1960s when radio stations began actively courting pop music bands. I discussed that all the way back in episode two of this podcast. In the 70s, country music was exactly on the road that the country music establishment wanted it to be, for better or worse. In a decade littered with examples of country pop or country rock crossover hits, it is a little hard to see how Urban Cowboy gets blamed for all of that. Mickey Gilly said that at that point, country music was at a standstill, and then it exploded on the market. I think what the movie and the album did was introduce country music to a larger audience. John Travolta gave it that extra boost because he was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. He does Urban Cowboy, and everyone goes to see it. Johnny Lee, who sings Looking for Love, said, There was a lot of great music that came out of that movie. We could use more fads like that. If you're talking about the fashions or something like that, maybe that was a fad. But the music was not. The movie put country back on the map again. He said it wasn't just young people who were listening. People in their 30s and 40s were listening too. And now new generations have seen the movie on TV and they know all the songs. The purity of country music aside, it is hard to deny the cultural significance of both Urban Cowboy the movie and Urban Cowboy the soundtrack. As far as their relationship goes, the soundtrack does tell the story of the movie. If you are a fan of the movie and I ask you what song Bud and Sissy danced to at their wedding, you probably don't need me to remind you that it was Anne Murray's Can I Have This Dance? What about when Bud was slow dancing with that damn Pam who tried to steal Bud from Sissy when they were on a break? Look What You've Done to Me by Boz Skaggs who wrote the lyrics after watching the film of that scene. Remember when Wes was getting himself all taped up and ready to go ride the bull before he tried to rob Gillies and then the double went down to Georgia by Charlie Daniels was playing in the background? Perfect. Tony Glover, who was writing for Rolling Stone in 1971, he said, in most cases, soundtrack albums seem designed as take-home souvenirs of a media experience. Relying on deja vu and memory flashes to recreate visceral emotions in the privacy of your head. It serves as a psychic tap, reopening emotions planted by the original cinematic experience. This soundtrack does that. But Looking for Love is the song most identified with Urban Cowboy. Critics hated it. 20 other singers said no to recording it before Johnny Lee said yes, 
And well, I don't know. Is this country enough for Urban Cowboy? I spent a lifetime looking for you Single bars and good time lovers were never true Playing a fool's game, hoping to win And telling those sweet lies and losing again Can you see uh, Bud reaching back at the end of the movie and getting the license plate that has Sissy's name on it and putting it back in the window? Can you? Would you guess I've seen the movie a few times? Uh, Looking for Love was a top five pop hit three weeks uh, at number one on the country charts in 1980. It was not released until after the movie was released because Irving Azoff wanted people to see the movie first and understand the context of the song. By the way, it was written by two school teachers, Wanda Millette and Patty Ryan, who I'm going to guess made a bit more money from this song than they ever made in the classroom. Movies serve many purposes. They can offer an escape from reality. They can reimagine real events. They can create new worlds. They can reflect the world we are in. They can give us the hero's journey. Movies in the 70s did all of those things. What makes them even more important to the decade, though, is that movie music was allowed to go along for the ride. Soundtracks got better as soundtracks became more intentional. With movies being such an important part of many of our lives, creating space for music to be a partner in that journey enriches the experience. And that is, after all, the whole point of music. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. All of my sources are in the show notes at ftr70.com. That's all for now. Bye, everybody.